So this is the final, just a short three-part series we've been doing looking at culture. And it's a bit different from our normal kind of teaching series, but an important subject and one I thought it was worth us giving some attention to. And there's been three aims, really, of what we've been doing in this series. The first one is for us to see that there's no such thing as normal when it comes to culture. Uh, different cultures do things that they think are normal, but which look strange to others. Um, and that can be all kinds of different things to how we look at, how we regard time, how we regards social relationships, things like uh, if you belch after a meal in some cultures, that's very polite. In other cultures, it's not so polite. Uh, one thing looks normal in one place and it looks strange in another place. So just helping to us to see that there's no such thing as normal when it comes to culture. The second aim has been for us to uh, think about how we can do better at connecting with people from other cultures so that we can connect better with people who are not like us. Um, and uh, one of the joys of church life is that we uh, have people from many different backgrounds with us, and we want to be welcoming to those who come from different kinds of cultures. And then the third aim is for, to help us think about how we can be faithful disciples of Jesus in our culture, in this culture, in the place in which we live. And the first two parts of the series are focused more on the first two aims, and this morning I want to think more about this third one, about how we can be disciples in our culture, how we do life as a church of Jesus Christ here in Paul and Bournemouth in the 21st century. The reality is that uh, we no longer live in a Christian culture. Um, that's not the culture of the UK anymore, even though the values which our culture has are actually, they owe their existence to Christianity. So the things which our culture particularly values in terms of things like diversity and human rights and tolerance, those kind of values which you see described all the time, always being kind of promoted in our culture through the media, in the news, all the time, diversity, human rights, tolerance, actually they wouldn't exist if it wasn't for Christianity. But if, if we were just the product of Greek and Roman philosophy, we wouldn't have the same kind of values. The reason that our culture values diversity and human rights and tolerance is entirely because those are values which actually come out of the Christian faith. But the foundation of those values has been kind of kicked out. That because our culture has rejected Jesus Christ, has rejected Christianity, there isn't actually any foundation for why we should celebrate diversity and tolerance and human rights. The, the, the legs have been kicked out from the chair because the legs actually are faith in Jesus Christ. That's where those things come from. And that's why we see this kind of contradiction that those in our society who are most liberal are actually often increasingly intolerant. And we'll talk about diversity and human rights and, and, toler and tolerance, but actually don't display it. And so you have things like having got to peak lunacy, where on the London Underground we can't talk about ladies and gentlemen anymore, but have to talk about everyone because somehow it's offensive to talk about ladies and gentlemen. Or the phenomenon of no platforming in universities across the country, where anybody who doesn't quite exactly fit the exact model of what you're meant to say is not allowed to speak publicly in universities. We see an increasing intolerance in a culture which claims to lay hold of and value tolerance. And that is because the foundations of tolerance and diversity in human rights have been kicked out because our culture has rejected Christ. And we need to understand that and see those things. And this, where our culture is, provides real challenges to us as Christians, but also real opportunities for us. When we think about how to do mission in this culture because people need to hear about Jesus. They really do. And when we think about that, it's, it's like we're sending out the lifeboats. 
to rescue people from the mess that they're in. And, and the church, is, if you like, is, is the lifeboat. The church is the lifeboat which goes out to rescue people. And the gospel is like the emergency rope and life jacket which people need to grasp hold of in order to be saved. And, and the culture is a bit like the, the wind and the tides and the currents which we have to navigate in order to launch the lifeboats and cast the rope and see people rescued. And so this morning I want to think about, us to think about how we understand those three things. How we understand the church, understand the gospel, understand the culture, and how we need to put that together to be missionaries in our culture. Okay, so a lot to cover in the next 25 minutes or so. Let's go. First thing, understanding the church. Paul writes, 1 Timothy 3, Although I hope to come to you soon, I'm writing to you with these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Apostle Paul is writing to his friend Timothy, who's in a city called Ephesus, and Ephesus is a very challenging cultural context. If you read Acts 19 about when the apostles first went to Ephesus, Paul's preaching stood up a riot. So this is a place where it's challenging to be a Christian. And Paul is writing to Timothy because he wants Timothy to put foundations in the church. He wants the church in Ephesus to be strong. And actually Paul says that the church is strong. The church is the pillar and foundation of the truth. If you're looking for solid ground on which to stand, and God knows in our culture we need some solid ground on which to stand. If you're looking for solid ground to stand, where you find solid ground is in the church. Because the church is the foundation and the pillar of the truth. Remember when Jesus was on trial and before Pilate, and Pilate asked that very post-modern, post-truth question, what is truth? Well, where you find truth, you find truth in Jesus Christ. He is the truth, and his church is the foundation and pillar of the truth. The church is where you find Jesus. There is truth, which isn't relative, which is absolute, which is found in Christ and displayed through his church. But the local church needs to live up to this. The church is described as being the foundation, the pillar of truth, but we need to live up to that. And how do you do that? Well, that's what the first letter of Timothy is all about. And before we get to chapter 3 and this this declaration of what the church is, Paul gives all kinds of practical teaching for Timothy to give to the church in Ephesus. He He says about how Timothy is to teach the truth and to reject falsehood. He says how Timothy is to teach the church to live as faithful citizens in the world in which they're being placed, despite its hostility. Pray for those in authority, he says. He gives instructions about what domestic life is meant to look like, about how husbands and wives are meant to relate to one another. And he gives instructions about how the church is meant to be structured with elders and deacons in place who are set in place because of the quality of their character and the nature of their gift. And Paul's explicit then about this. He says, I'm writing to you with these instructions. These instructions. These instructions about men and women, how they're to relate to one another. These instructions about elders and deacons and what they're to be like and what they're to do. These instructions about how you're to regard those who are in authority with you. These instructions about what's to be taught in your meetings. I write to you with these instructions so that people will know how to conduct themselves in God's household in the church. There's a, a standard of behavior which is expected in the church if the church is to live up to what it's meant to be as a pillar and foundation of the truth. And in giving these instructions, Paul's really kind of setting out the, the institutional framework of what the church is meant to look like. 
And we can kick against that because in our culture we don't like the idea of institutions. We think of institutions as being bad news. Actually, institutions aren't bad news. Institutionalism is bad, but institutions are necessary. Look around the world. What are the most chaotic, the most dangerous, the most scary, the least healthy places to live? It's those places which lack robust institutions. Where there aren't institutions of law and order and government and healthcare, that is chaos. That's that is 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 disastrous for the human condition. And so what humans actually need, the way God has ordered the world, is there are meant to be robust institutions which allow human flourishing, and there's meant to be a kind of robust institution about the local church, because the church contains and is meant to display the truth. The church is a pillar and foundation of the truth. And so the local church needs these institutions of right leadership and right order and right government and right attitudes to outsiders and all these things which Paul teaches Timothy to teach the church. One of the metaphors that we like to use here at Gateway is a contrast between a peach and a coconut. And uh, many churches actually are more like coconuts, incredibly hard to get into. You turn up on a Sunday and nobody's friendly and it's all alien and, and, and difficult to get into. And you know when you get into a coconut, it takes a lot of effort and it's a long time since I've even bothered because usually you think it's not worth the effort. There's a little mean bit of flesh which tastes all right, but it's, it's not actually that great an experience normally. And that's not what we want church to be like. What we want church to be like is much more like a peach where it's easy to get in. So if you're here for the first time this morning, I hope you find us more peachy than coconutty, that people are friendly to you, that there's explanation of what we're doing, that kind of what we're doing is explained even if you're not used to it, and people are welcoming, all that stuff. That's what we want, but at the center of the peach is something you don't want to catch your teeth on. As a hard stone, as something solid. And that's what the church should be like. The church, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Something solid at the center, something unshakable, something robust. And that's what Timothy is meant to help build in Ephesus, and that's what we're meant to display here in Paul and Bournemouth, because, to shift the metaphor again, the church is the lifeboat. And you don't want the lifeboat in a mess. You don't want holes in the lifeboat. You don't want the gear and ropes messed up on the deck. You don't want people being lazy or in the wrong position and not doing what they're meant to do. The lifeboat needs to be ordered and well-maintained in order to go on the rescue mission it's meant to do. And so don't mess with the church. Don't tangle the ropes. Don't get out of position. Don't be lazy. Don't be slack. Don't put a hole into it. The church is the pillar and foundation of the truth, and its members need to live up to that. You, I, need to live up to that. Understand the church. Second thing we need to understand is the gospel. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. When I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Romans 1, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Hallelujah. The gospel is the message of life. The way that you can get to God is through Jesus Christ and him crucified. That is the way you get to God. And we, the local church, must proclaim Christ. 
We have to throw out the rope. We have to throw out the life boy. We have to provide people with the life jackets of the gospel. The way you get right with God, the way you come to God is through Jesus Christ and him crucified. In the gospel, there is power for salvation. The gospel is not some archaic belief. The gospel is the way by which things are put to rights. And the gospel deals with both the personal and the universal. The gospel answers the two big questions of of life. What must I do to be saved? And what hope is there for the world? The gospel answers those two questions. Um, Tim Keller talks about the gospel being like a story of four chapters. He puts it like this. The first question is, where did we come from? The answer the gospel gives is we came from God. And God is one. There is one God. Lord over all, creator of all things. We're not here just as a result of random forces of nature and physics. There is one God who made all things, including us. He's one God, but he's also relational because he's one God who somehow, the mystery of the Trinity is three persons. This means that God in his very nature is a relational God. This means that God in his very nature is a God of love. And so he has made us human beings for relationship. He's made us for love. He's made us for friendship. The the second chapter, the question is, why did things go so wrong? And we look around the world, and actually a lot of the time life goes pretty well. A lot of my friends are living pretty happy, contented, fulfilled lives. But we also know there's an awful lot that goes wrong when teenage kids are throwing acid in the faces of people, when terrorists are attacking pop concerts, when... A tower block goes up in flames when however many civilians have been killed in Mosul. We can look at the world and say there's so much which has gone wrong. Why was that? And the answer the gospel gives is because of sin. That because of our rebellion against God, everything has just gone out of whack. That we are now in bondage. This means that even the good things which we pursue often turn around and bite us. That the things that we pursue to make sense of life and give us meaning, give us hope, actually can also be the things which end up destroying us. You pursue popularity and you just end up being anxious the whole time about whether you actually are liked. You pursue intellectual kind of brilliance and then you worry the whole time that somebody's going to find you out and expose what you don't know sometime. You pursue career and wealth and find actually that is also short term and doesn't last and somebody gets promoted ahead of you. And We're in kind of bondage because of the power of sin, and we're also under condemnation. That God sees our sin and he condemns sin because sin is offensive to him. The third chapter in the gospel story is, well, what will put things right then? Jesus Christ. Jesus who came in the incarnation, who lived amongst us as a human being, who knows what it is to experience the limits and the frailties of human life, one who came amongst us as one of us and was our substitute, the one who died in our place so that God's condemnation against sin would not fall on us but fell on his son. And the one who will restore all things, that this world won't just peter out when in however millions of years our son finally gives up the ghost. No, Jesus is going to restore all things so that all things be made good and perfect and the world will be made good and perfect and all that we see now which is good will be just like as a shadow compared with how it will be when he restores it. And the fourth part of the chapter of the gospel story is, well, how then can I be put right? And the gospel answer is through faith. 
that God in his grace rescues us, restores us, saves us. The lifeboat is launched, the rope is cast. We are able to come into the presence of God when we trust him. We trust him. And it's not the amount of trust that counts. The example that Keller uses is it's like getting on a plane. You get on a plane and some people have complete confidence about flying. No anxieties, no worries at all. Other people get onto a plane terrified. They still get on and the plane flies and then it gets where it's meant to go. And that's what trusting God is like. If it's small as a mustard seed or as big as a mountain, what counts is trust in God. He's the one we trust in. He's the one who is faithful. He's the one who rescues. We need to understand the gospel and we need to proclaim the gospel. And the third thing we need to understand is the culture. Acts 17, Paul stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. The Apostle Paul went to Athens as he went to many cities and he worked hard at understanding what counted in that culture. He looked around, he saw the questions that people were asking. He kind of determined the, 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 the way that people understood themselves in terms of what point of history is this and who are we as a people and what's wrong and what's the solution. He saw how people were asking and answering those kind of questions and he spoke in a way which connected and contextualized, which... Uh, which made the message of the gospel powerful in the context in which he was speaking. And we need to do those things as well. We need to have our eyes open. We need to be looking at our culture, thinking about how it's formed and who controls it, who controls space and time, who controls the physical artifacts. What does the fact the way our world operates as it now does with the internet and with and, and with uh, cars and, the way, and shopping malls, what do all these things mean to the questions that people ask and answer about life? How do we understand our culture? How do we contextualize? How do we connect? But also that we need to exercise caution because our culture isn't just neutral. We can't just swim in the tides and currents of our culture because if we do that, we'll drown along with the rest of our culture because our culture is secular and individualistic and consumeristic. And if we just get sucked into the tide of that secularism and that individualism and that consumerism, we'll lose the gospel, we'll lose the church, we'll lose the lot. We're meant to be on the lifeboat, casting out the rescue ropes, not being dragged around by the tides and currents of the ocean in which we find ourselves. We need to understand our culture. But we need to see that it's not neutral, that if we just go with the flow, we'll end up being drowned. Understanding the church, understand the gospel, understand the culture, and then we need to put our understanding into action. We need to see how we bring church and gospel and culture together in order to be missionaries in our culture and see people rescued for Jesus Christ. And the thing is, it's very easy to lose one of these three. Let me just talk through how this can work. Church plus culture minus the gospel equals liberalism. This is where there's some kind of value of the church, particularly in its kind of aesthetic and historical value. And there's some institutional strength to the church. And there tends to be a great deal of interest in engaging with the culture and often a particular interest in art and politics and saving the environment and all those kinds of things. But the gospel is not preached. And when sin is mentioned, sin is only mentioned in regards to institutions, not individuals. 
So it's all about the fact that institutions have failed, which means that you have a fire in the Grenfell Flats, but there's no mention of personal sin, that you and I personally are condemned unless we come in faith to Jesus Christ. And the church like that just becomes another lobby group, essentially. Just another kind of political lobby group with some kind of artistic benefits of nice music and interest in the arts. Pastor Mark Sayers from Melbourne in Australia puts it like this, like a team of suicide bombers who obliterate themselves yet irrevocably change the cultural atmosphere, liberal Christianity has essentially destroyed itself as an ecclesiological institutional force, yet has won the culture over to its vision of a Christianity reshaped for contemporary tastes. What he's saying is that so often when people think about the church now in the West, what they think of is this toothless, worthless institution, which is just another political lobby group, which is really nothing more than just being nice, with no edge to it, with no real message to it. A a, a group of people, a, a church which seeks to be culturally relevant, but by losing the gospel has become utterly irrelevant left just with beautiful buildings with nobody in them and a toothless message because there's no gospel. So much of the church in the West has fallen prey to liberalism. That's why, so many, so much of the, that's why we hear about church decline. What's declining is, is liberalism because liberalism leads to death because without any gospel, there's no point in the end to stay in your beautiful buildings with nobody in them with just a toothless message. It's a waste of time. Second thing, though, we can lose actually is culture. Gospel plus church minus culture is fundamentalism. And there's no fun in fundamentalism. In fun- fundamentalism, the church is kind of valued as an institution, as a body, and the gospel is preached. But there's no interest in connecting with the culture and understanding it. Actually, there's a hostility to the culture. And what you end up then with is something which is very legalistic and very unfruitful. And sadly, this is what many people think of when you say, do word association, what does church mean? What they think of is this kind of fundamentalist thing where it's just, it's it's the coconut church, hard. And when you get into it, there's nothing actually attractive or tasty there. And why would anybody want to respond to this kind of church? Why would anybody want to respond to the kind of church which which condemns people without any attempt to connect with people in, in the lives that they lead? What people are looking for is love and for empathy and for hope. And you can't do that if you're hostile to the culture around you. People are looking for love. God is a God of love. That's who he essentially is. God is a relational God. And if we take any kind of connection with culture out of what we're doing, if we just do church and gospel, we don't witness the love of God to those who need to hear it. We don't witness hope. We don't display empathy. We don't show care. So, again, a failed strategy. It's not the church as the pillar and foundation of truth. Another thing you can do, though, is kind of ditch the church. You can have culture and gospel without the church, and then you end up with the parachurch. And what you have is people who actually got so frustrated with the church, they got frustrated with the liberal church, and they got frustrated with the fundamental church, and so they try and create a different structure, which is a bit like the church, but without the same uh, orders and structures and without the trouble And parachurch groups can do some very good work, but it misses the point. It is the church which is the foundation and pillar of the truth, not something else. There's not meant to be a plan B. 
Through my church, Jesus said, not through some other thing that the kingdom of God advances. And uh, one of the sad things about the power church, despite all the good things that power church organizations do, is actually they can undermine the local church because all the time they're trying to get local churches to sign up to their latest projects. Come and do this, come and do that. And actually, no, we're building the church because the church is the foundation and pillar of the church, of the truth. In the end, power church is always going to be short term. It's going to be projects which come and go. The church endures because the church is the body and bride of Christ. It is the living temple. It is the pillar and foundation.